biggest game changer now is the fact that we rely on digital technology, that we can get things so quickly, that information is at our fingertips. Doctors can't remember everything that they need to know to provide care. And today we have this opportunity to use the data, the analytics, the technology to drive better decision making. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Nancy Schlichting has built a long and amazing career as someone who takes chances, makes unconventional choices, and leads with her conscience. After many years of health system leadership, she now brings her style of management to the many companies on which she serves on the board, always thinking about how organizations continue to get better. This is Tectonics. I'm David Shaywitz. And I'm Lisa Sunin, and we're grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's show. Manat Health is a multidisciplinary professional services firm that integrates a full-service law firm with a broad-based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help our clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system. So, David? Yes, Lisa? <laughs> here you have moved on from your uh, prior uh, that work. That is uh, all true, all true. As of January 1st, I am the proud founder of Astounding Health Tech, providing advisory services to uh, R&D-driven biopharmas and to health tech startups seeking to better understand and get a grounded perspective of uh, biopharma R&Ds. Very exciting. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, Free at last. Well, no, you know, what's <laughs> funny thing is I, I actually came away really impressed with uh, Takeda in general and the R&D and the and innovation there. Um, but the thing is the venture group is really – it's incredibly strategically aligned with R&D. And, um, you know, and, and they're really trying to focus on early-stage life science opportunities. And the bottom line is um, dig, there was like promising digital and data stuff that just couldn't compete successfully with the, all the early-stage life science stuff we were seeing. Um, and which are a far more obvious strategic fit, which I think is much more of a general industry problem. Right. And there's just so much exciting as you're the proof, as listeners know, right? <laughs> well, as listeners know of of in yeah. digital and data, and I did, and being in Silicon Valley with so much going on, I'm just thrilled to uh, jump into that. Well, we wish you all the luck in the world. Yeah, I'm thrilled. So moving on to today's show, we, many people have heard of Nancy Schlichting, and she's been a part of the fabric of the U.S. healthcare system for nearly 40 years. In 2015, she authored a book called Unconventional Leadership based on her experience as being a very outside-the-box leader at healthcare organizations of different stripes. Nancy, we are so happy to have you Delighted on the show to today. Delighted to have on the show. Oh, thank you so much, Lisa and David. It's just a pleasure to be with you. And I think well, I just want to start by asking you what makes you so unconventional. Why that word? <laughs> Well, you know, it's interesting. I I have known my whole life that I was a little different, and part of it is my personal story um, as a woman in healthcare and as a gay woman. But it's also about sort of how I think and and being very young in my career when I had large responsibilities. I ran a 650-bed hospital when I was 28 years old as a chief operating officer. Oh, who hasn't? You know, it's it's been an amazing uh, journey and one that I think has allowed me to take more risk and and have confidence in, in some of the decisions and beliefs that I've had. So you said uh, in, in an interview I read that courage is the very best lever for personal success. Yeah. How, what, is, what do you mean by that? What's the lesson in that for, say, entrepreneurs and other leaders? Well, I think, you know, a lot of it is just believing in yourself and believing in your ideas. And, you know, spending time in two cities that have gone through such economic turmoil, Akron, Ohio, and Detroit, Michigan, mm-hmm. um, you had to have courage. Or... Frankly, if you know, you would fail because uh, you know the, the the risks economically and the challenges were so great that you had to kind of 
create your future as opposed to waiting for it to happen. And and I think that allowed me to, you know, just do things that I believed in, that I thought were the right things to do, you know, focusing on quality and, and investment in communities and our people and just making sure that we were taking care of all the people in the organization at times when they really needed it, uh, both from a health perspective and just in terms of their jobs and, and security. So, so Nancy, we're so ex- I feel like now that we've teased the, uh, the listeners and they know sort of where this is heading, um, maybe we can take half a step back and sort of understand how you got to be the person you are that, that led to that was able to sort of deal with these challenges. Um, did you, when you were, what was your childhood like? Did you, did you feel that you were different or when was the first age that you sort of thought maybe you were different from other people or, or what was the manifestation of that? Well, you know, it's, it's a great question because it, there is no doubt in my mind that, that my, the way I think and, and my belief system started because of my parents. Um, you know, they, my, my dad was an inventor. Wow. Uh, he was a nuclear engineer, you know, very early on in that industry. And, and he just thought there was no problem that couldn't be solved. And, you know, he had amazing resilience. My poor dad, who actually just turned 97 in October. Wow. God bless. You know, he lost his father when he was 18. His brother and sister died on the same day in 1966 of different diseases. Wow. And so this guy, you know, went through a lot uh, in his personal life and, and then my mom got really sick when we were young, and, and when he retired, my mom got sick and, and unfortunately passed three years later. So he, he's this guy that has been an amazing role model for me. And my mother was this person that just believed women could do anything, and she was a tough you know, woman who, frankly, never That's had awesome. the career that she could have if she had just grown up in a different time. So I think that was very inspiring to me as well, and I wanted to you know, do things that unfortunately she couldn't do in her life, but maybe I could. So I think that gave me a lot of uh, strength. So when you went to, I know you went to Duke undergrad and then to Cornell for an MBA, but you you focus on hospital administration. Yeah. How did you know you wanted to do that? Was it driven by all the healthcare sort of stories in your family or was it something else? Because it's something we've heard about a lot on our show and we're just so curious. How does someone get attracted to that? Well, you know, it, I, I thought healthcare was terrible when I was young. Um, watching you know, people in my family, especially my mother when she was sick. She was in the hospital for a month, had four kids at home, ages 2 to 12, and and we were never even allowed to visit her. Um, you know, that was the kind of just really archaic thinking that hospitals had, and, and frankly still are not far enough along in terms of engaging families and understanding what, what you know, the illness of one member of the family does to the rest of the family. Um, so I think, you know, it was really motivated by that. I originally wanted to be a doctor and realized at a, a pretty early point in my Duke career as an undergraduate that I, I couldn't stand the sight of blood and this just wasn't going to work <laughs> for me. Um, you know, I passed out in my pre-med society visits to the Duke Hospital ER and, and I thought, well, that's not good. So, so I kept searching, you know, for something that would allow me to really bring my interest in medicine and health care but also, I had been a debater in high school, and I loved public policy, and I ended up majoring in that at Duke. And so it really allowed me to find this path that I thought brought you know, my interests and perhaps my competencies together. When you started out, and you obviously didn't start out as CEO of a hospital, although that came pretty quickly, what, what was the most significant observation you had when you were on staff that inspired you to do things differently? What did you observe? Well, you know, I started, Lisa, as a... Um, Right. Nurse aide. You know, I was a frontline worker. When I finished Duke, I took these 
frontline jobs. And and I realized, first of all, how every job was really hard um, and every job was important and how often the disciplines in a hospital don't work very well together. You know, you've got all these different professional groups and they kind of often uh, work in silos. And, you know, there was such a great opportunity for bringing people together and, and understanding the complexity of how you deliver care and how it could be so much better if people were more as a team. Um, and that's something that stayed with me throughout my career, a focus on people, always trying to pay attention to how to make each person more successful, reach their potential, and uh, really contribute to the, the outcomes that we were trying to achieve. You know, um, when you were first uh, introducing yourself, one of the first things that you said was about your uh, that characterized you as your experiences um, as a woman and as a gay woman, but it wasn't always so comfortable for you to talk about that. Is that correct? That's there correct. was a particular experience that's just so striking when you were passed over for a promotion in 1993. We understand, yeah, when the COO of a Riverside Methodist Hospital in Columbus um, uh, received a. a, a, a um, an anonymous letter sent to your CEO and all the trustees saying, in essence, congratulations on hiring a lesbian to run your hospital. <laughs> Could you I, – I can't it, – it just sounds unimaginable. Can you maybe bring it, if it's not too painful, to bring us back to that experience and and sort of say how how that experience – kind of contributed to who you are? Yeah, well, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And frankly, that that experience, I, it was the lowest point in my life, uh, without a doubt. I, I really thought my career was over. Um, you know, I had been afraid of this since I realized I was gay uh, my uh, junior year in college. And I, you know, it just, it was it was my worst nightmare coming true. And you know, the good thing that happened, though, in this process is you find out really who your friends are. And one of the things that happened when I was at Riverside is the doctors just rallied around me. I mean, these were my colleagues who went to the CEO, who, you know, just stood up for me. Um, and even when I was passed over and it didn't work out, and I ended up leaving uh, that hospital. You know, they, they stayed my friends. I mean, I still get Christmas cards from doctors in Columbus and and, you know, I mean, they just were so amazing. Um, and there were many employees as well. But the, the physicians really stood out for me because, you know, you don't expect that. Um, but just to take us back to your thinking, what were, I mean, you said that this was your nightmare. So when you, I mean, it sounds like at least initially at the time, this was something that you didn't feel comfortable sharing publicly. Right. No, I didn't. What was the thinking and how did that thinking change? Well, you know, when, when you're outed <laughs> in the world, which is really what happened. I mean, everybody found out. And uh, and then I told my family and I told friends. And, you know, at that point in your life, you realize, you know, you've, you've kind of hit that point where you have to be who you are. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Um, you know, I never looked back. And, you know, I, I've... There has really not been, you know, a situation uh, throughout my career that I would say was, you know, really that difficult. Most people accept you when they know you. You know, I often say that coming out for gay people is probably the reason we have same-sex marriage today, because I think as soon as people began to come out and be more themselves, mm -hmm. you know, it basically said you can't hate somebody that you love. And And when parents found out their children were gay or... You know, grandparents found out their grandchildren were gay. I mean, they couldn't not love their family. They they 
I mean, it, obviously some people get thrown out uh, of their family when they're gay, but I think it's really changed a lot of people's minds and hearts. So did the, did your, the fact of your sexuality ever stop being a thing that yeah. affected your career? I mean, I, you know, it just, I always thought it was going to be the barrier. I never thought I'd be a CEO because I never thought a board would accept me. And what was amazing is when I went to Henry Ford in Detroit, how accepting the community was. And frankly, it was because of a man named Alan Gilmore, who was a former vice chair and CFO at Ford Motor Company, who was outed in Fortune magazine when he when he retired from Ford. And he was our board chair when I arrived at Henry Ford, and he also chaired the search committee. So, you know, I was very lucky to have him in my life. He still is a great friend. Um, and to have, you know, him pave that way for me, because basically Henry Ford, you know, became a very accepting place because of his leadership. So do you have a message for other uh, LGBTQ, you know, folks out there who are afraid to push their limits, who are afraid to sort of try to be all they can be in their career? Actually, actually, I'm going to interrupt that question, Lisa. I'm sorry. But, but I, you know, when you're talking about this, Lisa, yeah. this... You know, when I think about like my kids growing up, and mm-hmm. I mean, they would find. I think if when they listen to this show, they're going to find this sort of an absurd conversation. Yeah, but and I don't think that's true everywhere. That's what I'm wondering. Yeah, I don't like, think how, that's true everywhere. Yeah, help us understand this because I mean, I know my kids. They're in in yeah, and I know we're growing up in like Northern California, like you know, of course. But it, it, it I mean, this is sort of like okay. I'm sorry. Like, what's the news? What's the difficulty? What's the challenge? Um, and when I'm listening to it, even I hear what you're saying, but it it I mean, it 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 doesn't resonate because it it seems striking that there are these problems. You know, that there would that there would even be an issue. Yeah. But but no no, Lisa's giving me a look saying hey, you're wrong. Um, but, <laughs> And typically when she does that, she's right. <laughs> well, you know, it, 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 depends on, it, dep- it depends a lot on where you live, unfortunately, because there are very conservative parts of this country where mm-hmm. it is not easy. And, you know, in rural, rural communities, frankly, in parts of the South, I mean, you know, there, there's a lot of places where it is not easy to be gay at all. And, in fact, in Detroit, one of the things that I worked on prior to my retirement was we created a, a health clinic for homeless gay youth who get thrown out of their homes in Detroit. And there's a place there called the Ruth Ellis Center that houses these young people, and we provided the medical care. And, I mean, it's an extraordinary place because you realize that there are a lot of kids that don't are not in a safe place in their homes. But to Lisa's question about sort of being professionally stigmatized in in careers like um, yeah. you know like administration, you know business, medicine, law, do you think that that's that there's a degree of um, professional stigmatization or career um, deceleration associated with well, one's I sexuality think it's a lot today? Better. I mean, I. You know, there's no question with people like Tim Cook from Apple and, you know, even myself being out there, uh, it has changed, uh, I think, the narrative a lot. And it's also changed, as I said, minds and hearts. And at the end of the day, you know, it's it's about people having bias and not seeing, you know, certain types of people in certain types of roles. And I think the more that we can change that by demonstrating, you know, that you know, it's one dimension of who you are, but there's so many gifts that we all bring to our work. And professionally, you know, we want to embrace all those gifts and and not be, you know, limited by, you know, one aspect that some people might have a problem with. But, you you know, it shouldn't affect the way you, you do your work. So let's, let's move on and talk about 
about your your time at Henry Ford. So you took over as CEO in 2003, and uh, pretty much that health system was uh, in utter disarray, as I as I recall. Um, what made you confident you could turn it around, and, and what was the first thing you did to do that? Well, it's it's interesting. I had already, you know, I came to Henry Ford in 98, so I had been there for a few years, mm-hmm. and we had gone through, you know, significant financial challenges during that time, and, and the real turning point was when I went over to run Henry Ford Hospital for about a little under two years, um, and Gail Warden, who had been my mentor and my boss, asked me to do that, and I jumped at the chance because I felt so strongly that the reason Henry Ford could succeed is if Henry Ford Hospital really turned around. And so we were able to do that. Uh, We turned it around from a loss situation to break even in about a year, and then we were able to uh, make it profitable in about two years. And and it is it was the core of the health system. I mean, it was half the revenue of the delivery system. So if if we didn't make that work, what was the lever you pulled to make that rapid turnaround? Because that's pretty unusual. And most, I mean, most hospitals around the country today are barely on the brink. So how did you turn that around? Well, we made really hard decisions. Like what? We had to lay off fifteen percent of the workforce. Um, you know, I had to lay off six hundred people at Henry Ford Hospital. It was horrible. And then we closed one of our hospitals in the health system. Uh, we closed our pediatric service uh, and transferred it over to Children's Hospital of Michigan, which was, you know, a very close hospital to us. Uh, but the, none of these decisions were easy. Um, it was it was a very difficult time. And you know, if you ask anyone who still works at Henry Ford about that time, you can get you know the sense of of how tough it was. But it was exactly what we had to do because we were not growing at that time. And, and Detroit was, the population of Detroit was declining so significantly. Right. And frankly, the hospital had not been invested in. So if you looked at the hospital, it, it, it looked run down. It looked like an urban uh, hospital that had been, you know, underappreciated, underinvested in. And so one of the things that I did right away as soon as we got through the layoffs was I told our CFO, I said, we've got to invest in this hospital. We have to, I need all the money you can give me so we can do some things. And the biggest thing that turned it around was innovation in, in technology. It was really bringing a robotic surgery for prostate cancer, which was really um, innovated by uh, our chair of urology, urology Dr. Money Menon. And he came to me and said, Nancy, I want to try doing this. Um, and, and we were the first in the world to do it at Henry Ford. And, you know, it, it required a significant investment, but we kind of pulled all the resources together and made it happen. And and that, his success with that, and it was such a breakthrough uh, for patients uh, who had prostate cancer, that we attracted patients from 25 countries of the world and all 50 states within a few years. And that kind of gave us our mojo back. It allowed us to um, really show that innovation was part of our DNA, because it was, but, you know, we kind of lost a little of that over time. And and after that, I mean, we just created Innovation Institute. We, you know, brought in new new um, clinicians who were just really advanced in their work. And, you know, we started this momentum that has, has continued uh, to this day, and they're doing very well today. So I'm curious, you know, as I, I, I spend a lot of time in this innovation and tech in the, in the healthcare world, too, and you know, one of the things I observe is that when it gets down to it, most of the health systems only want to invest in innovation that increases revenue. Yeah. 
They don't want to generally invest in innovation that reduces cost or reduces or you know improves efficiency or what have you. It's really focused on adding revenue, adding new services whenever possible. What do you think about that? Am I right, or or do you see anything different out there? Why? Well, I- I think you are right. I think, frankly, I think a lot of my colleagues are way too conservative um, when it comes to taking risk and doing things that really make a difference. Plus, I don't think they're often grounded in what we really should be doing in healthcare. Because, you know, one of the things that I learned at a very young point in my career is that, you know, adding resources, whether it was in the old days, adding beds when your length of stay was still eight days, and, you know, what in the world is that about? Or, you know, demonstrating that you could really improve cost effectiveness in a hundred different ways if you focused on it. And, you know, at Henry Ford, we had a we had an insurance company as well as a salaried medical group. Right. Um, so we it was part of our thinking that we were always trying to drive value, and that meant improving quality, reducing cost. So, you know, when it came to Dr. Menon's idea about this innovation, it was really how we could reduce the cost of the procedure, reduce the length of stay, reduce the impact on the patient, you know, improve the outcomes, reducing complications from prostate surgery. You know, that was what was driving uh, the agenda. And, and, you know, and we didn't know if it was going to work. I mean, you know, we really weren't sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I have a thing that I, I believe that, you know, a strategy is all about making it a good strategy. You know, it's never perfect on day one. You constantly have to iterate and improve it. And so we shouldn't be afraid of even some failures early on. We should keep going. You know, how can we make it better? It's a process, not an event, as they say. I mean, that's what great inventors do. I mean, there's a lot of failure when you you innovate. So, you you know, the health, the world of hospitals and health systems is changing dramatically. And when you think about, like, you know, looking out 10 to 20 years, what do you think are the biggest changes that will, you will see? Yeah. I mean, one of the things I see, I see tremendous amount of disintermediation on the front, on the primary care and the front end of the hospital, right. um, you know, certainly moved to home. But what, what do you think hospitals are going to look like 20 years from now? You know, I have, I have some perspective on that because, you know, I, I started in my healthcare career when the average length of stay in, in hospitals was eight days. And today it's about four. I started before we had done any, um, you know, angioplasties, before we had done um, arthroscopies, before we had done non-invasive surgery. So I have watched, you know, incredible advances over the years. And, you know, people always think it's always in the future that we're going to see all the advances. We've done amazing work in the last, you know, 40 years that I've been engaged in this work. But I think what's probably the most, of a, you know, the biggest game changer now is the fact that we rely on digital technology, that we can get things so quickly that information is at our fingertips. Doctors can't remember everything that they need to know to provide care. And today we have this opportunity to use the data, the analytics, the technology to drive better decision-making. So I think for, the, for that exact reason, we're seeing so many um, large tech companies uh, get in or try to get into clinical care delivery. There was the Google Ascension um, right. uh, stuff from... Um, um, uh, the past year. Uh, how how do you see that marriage? Well, you know, I, I think it makes a lot of sense. I think the challenge is in the execution. You know, what people often don't do, I mean, we almost do no research and development on the delivery of care. You know, we bring a lot of tools to it, but often the integration of those tools into the workplace is sometimes a disaster. I mean, right <laughs> now, 
you know, one of the biggest problems we have in healthcare is that doctors are just burning out because they're trying so hard to add on, you know, a whole dimension of, of their work through technology, but at the same time doing a lot of the other things the same way they've always done them. And we've got to help the physician, the nurse, integrate technology. And we need to create a lot more on-the-ground type of R&D to test ideas before we bring all this to the, you know, the front line and, and then expect it to work. Well, it always and seemed... this, is, this is a big challenge, I think, today. And I, I watch it because I'm serving now on the Duke Health System Board. And, you know, and we hear a lot about the challenges of just the burnout of, of all the caregivers and, and the providers. So it's, it's a problem. I mean, if you look at the history of tech revolutions, um, there's a, it's fascinating looking at the role of implementation. I mean, one of the, one of the examples is when, there were, when electricity replaced steam in factories. There wasn't this huge increase in efficiency because factories were still laid out the almost the exact same way work was done the same way. It wasn't until really emerging co- industries came up with completely original, essentially, workflows and set all the machinery sort of in, in a linear, long, linear way versus in this 3D way concentrated around the steam generator that allowed for individual optimization of all the different parts, for example, and, and the assembly line. So it's really getting the, and that's where all the efficiency gains were seen. So I think figuring out essentially the problem is to introduce a new technology, it makes sense to minimize disruption in workflow. But on the other yep. hand, the real changes in efficiency can come from reimagining the workflow. And it's hard to yeah. imagine how you do both of those at the same time. I know. No, I think you've described it extremely well. It's, um, and, and, you know, I think what would be really cool if, you know, a Google or a Ascension or, you know, any partnership model is to create, you know, sort of a laboratory where you actually apply the technology with caregivers and really test, you know, the workflow, the clinical process, how it changes thinking, you know, because, and, and, and frankly, the other problem we have in healthcare is we have, you know, a, a very wide range of generations trying to interact with this, you know, the new tools and, you know, an older physician versus a younger physician are just two different worlds in terms of their ability and their interest and passion, you know, to engage uh, with new, new tools that will allow them to do their jobs better. And, and it's, it's very difficult. How do you create a lab to test these things when the patients are real? You know, I mean, it's like it's not yeah. – it's hard to do A-B testing on humans, right, when, you're, when it's life critical. I don't know that, that there's been anybody who's been showing the will to do that type of thing. Uh, in anything that's other than just sort of basic primary care. Well, but, you know, we have these simulation labs now in in hospitals and health systems that really have made a difference, you know, where you have, again, sort of you you simulate um, how you're going to provide that care. You sometimes use actors, you you know, you use videotaping, you watch things, you know, but at least you're testing it um, before. I mean, it used to be you'd go in to, you know, take care of a patient and the resident, you know, would do it for the first time and that it was on a patient. I mean, at least now we've got some ability to, you know, test our, our skills, especially when they're highly technical skills. Uh, before we try on a page. I, I couldn't agree with that more, at least in the training context. I, I, you know, in during our training, there was, I remember one or two days, I mean, really that was it. We had in some anesthesia team, I think it was the, maybe at the BI or the or somewhere, built this, you know, simulation right. 
um, uh, for and right. it was the best thing ever. I couldn't understand. It was the best thing ever, not in terms of it was exactly what medicine was like, but there were certain basic things, and I couldn't imagine. I mean, you, you know, you become a medical intern, right. but that's super intervention based, like one time intervention based. These things, and I think, like, if you're talking about completely changing the workflow of a health system and how care is delivered. It's longitudinal. You got to do it for a long time to understand if you've actually had an impact. So yeah. it's really True. difficult, I think. To it's do, a different question in a way, um, or a different type of rather simulation. Rather than a different type of surgery, yeah. or you know, whatever. Yeah. You know, that's true because I was thinking, you know, I mean, as an intern, you're basically your time, you're basically your 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 time of reference, you know, your reference frame is getting through the night until the team comes back the next day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? So it's sort of Prayer. like, well, no, but I mean, so, but like having a couple of uh, better honed reflexes really seems helpful. But I think you're talking about a sort of much more enduring point, Lisa. So now you are um, sort of retired, although you are one of the most unsuccessful retirees I've, I've ever seen because you do like – you're on like <laughs> 10 boards or something like that. Um, and I know that in your career you've been on something like 80 yeah. boards, uh, both for-profit and not-for-profit, public companies, private companies. What, what is it about board service that you like so much? You know, I, I love variety. Um, and that's why I became a healthcare administrator because – you know, when you run a hospital or a health system, it's like running a city. I thought it was because you like pain, because that seems like <laughs> a common theme to me. <laughs> I mean, you learn, you, you know, you're never bored. You know, there's constant challenge. Uh, you work with a whole variety of people. And my board service is much like that. You know, I, I'm on a manufacturing company board. I'm on a um, health system board. I'm on a retail pharmacy board, uh, you know, uh, academic um, it it's foundation. It's it's so fun, and the people on the board are so interesting, and I learn so much from each of them. And they're just you know wonderful uh, people that really are committed to change and you know positive uh, accomplishment, and you know it's just very stimulating. And I, I you know I just constantly try to learn. I mean, it's the reason I love doing this at this point in my life. It's it's really a, a real gift. Do you feel that? Board members can make a real difference with companies. I do. I, you know, obviously, it, you've got to you've got to be aligned uh, with the value system of the company. Can you give an example, for instance, of yours? You know, I just stepped off the Michigan State University board uh, a few weeks ago, and it was a difficult decision. But I, you know, they've gone through so much trauma associated with uh, Dr. Larry Nassar and the gymnastic program. Right. That's been terrible. And the effect on so many uh, young women. And, you know, to be real candid, you know, the, the university just was not doing what they should. And, and I, you know, I tried for a year to influence that and, and got to the point where I felt like, you know, no one was listening or, right. or the, you know, the people in charge were not listening mm-hmm. in the way that I thought was appropriate. So right. I got off that board. So I, I think it depends. I mean, you have to be on a board where it's a good fit for you, where you can, you know, make a difference and you enjoy uh, the opportunity to influence them. So you're, I mean, you've been very successful getting board seats. Most women aren't. How, how, why did, why are you different? And what should women who want to get on boards do? I get asked this all the time. You know, how do I get on a board? How do I get on yeah. a board? What, what advice do you give and what do you think's worked for you? Well, I think the reason I originally got on a for-profit board was networking. It was, you know, I, I knew people that, um, you know, that had been part of my board or involved in my life in a significant way who, who were my advocates, and that's how I got on the board. Um, but So I think networking is very important. I think, you know, I always answered the calls from the search firms, even when I didn't have an interest in what they were calling about. I would find 
people and give them recommendations. And I think having friends in the search business is a good thing. Um, and I also think, you know, today I'm participating in a, a Board Ready Women program. I'm co-chair in Detroit for a program sponsored by Jones Day and, and Deloitte. And and I think we've done a great job preparing women mm. for boards, but also helping them get on the boards. Um, and it's really been great to see the success uh, associated with that effort. So I, I think it's a good time for women um, to be on boards. So I, I'm very optimistic. Is there a particular, like, one piece of advice you would give that's specific? I, you know, as I said, I would, you know, use your network and tell people you have an interest. You know, sometimes it's really uh, someone on the nominating governance committee knowing someone saying, you know, I talked to this person, very interested in our company. Um, you know, don't be shy about it. So uh, let me ask you about, um, maybe in our last question or two, um, about your, your book, Unconventional Leadership. Um, one of the uh, interesting books uh, or, or authors I've read recently um, is uh, Jeff Pfeffer, who I'm sure you know, uh, at, uh, at Stanford, who has a pretty um, – uh, skeptical, I would say, view of um, of sort of the leadership literature writ large, um, and kind of thinks that what pe- <laughs> well, that seems to be put politely um, that a lot of what people say about leadership and preach after they're famous and successful is almost the opposite of what actually got them there. What yeah. do you have a perspective on that? And more importantly, on your own book, what what would you say is sort of like the key unexpected takeaways for leaders for future leaders? Well, um, you know, it's it's a great question. I have also been very skeptical of the leadership um, literature out there for my whole career. In fact, you know, I, I just didn't read management books because I felt like I wanted to learn from leaders. So I read biographies my whole life. And I learned a lot more from reading about the failures that people go through in order to succeed in their lives and, you know, it, and a lot of people think, you know, these careers are a straight line. They're not. I mean, it, you know, most people who actually achieve things in life have had some major disappointments along the way. And and un- understanding how to be resilient, how to overcome those challenges, is, I think is really important in leadership. I think when you, you don't have empathy and you don't un- understand your people very well, you cannot be a inspiring leader to anybody. And so for me, I think, you know, going through tough times, uh, you know, in my life and my career um, allowed me to understand that, you know, connecting with people, um, you know, that my fundamental job as a CEO was really to create a great environment for people to reach their full potential. Because when you lose control of a company, which I always felt I did, um, <laughs> you know, you actually give control to other people. And when they understand the values and what you stand for, they will follow that and and do things that are just extraordinary. But I think there's a lack of trust in people today. I think there's not enough focus on, you know, the ups and downs that we all face in our lives, in our careers. And I think the more we become more aware of that, I think we can be much more effective in leadership. So, Nancy, people know a lot about you because you've done many interviews, have been so transparent throughout difficult times in your career. Um, What's something people don't know about you that you can share and that shed lights on who you are, sheds light on who you are as a person? Well, you know, this is not exactly unknown, but I am, I am a highly competitive person. 
<laughs> I am ridiculous in playing ping pong or pool or golf or I mean it's just ridiculous and oh yeah I I don't know why I think I should be that good because I don't play that much but somehow I think I should be great at everything and it's insane <laughs> so you know it, it's part it's sort of the dark side of my competitiveness is you know sometimes really stupid things I've done <laughs> over the years. <laughs> love it well thank you so much it's been great to have you on the show today oh it's been a pleasure thank you so much both of you I really appreciate the opportunity well that was interesting Uh, I just I always love talking to Nancy she's just such a uh, inspiring person and you know what I what I observe of her having known her for a few years now is that she always just seems so comfortable in her own skin you know but it sounds like it wasn't always no, that I'm way. Sure it wasn't I mean, that but it's way. interesting, yeah. right? I mean, like but she having come to where she's come, whatever that is, right? And maybe she's not. Maybe she's just really good at putting on that show that so many of us uh, are. But boy, I, I tell you, she is just uh, a, a wonder to behold. You know, when you you see her talking to a room of people and how she just is so genuine and um, easy to connect with. Yeah, she's terrific. Well, uh, you can follow David's column, Astounding Health Tech, at the Timmerman Report. And please remember to give us a review on iTunes if you like the show. And you can follow the inimitable Lisa Sunin's writing at VentureValkyrie.com. We are grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's show. Manat Health is a multidisciplinary professional services firm that integrates a full-service law firm with a broad-based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports a full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system. Sayonara. Peace out. Peace out.